This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. When I saw the trailers for The Favorite, I knew I wanted to talk about it on this podcast. But talking about movies all by yourself isn't anywhere near as much fun as talking about them with a friend. I managed to rope two friends into discussing The Favorite with me, although not at the same time. First, I'll have Farrah Mendelssohn to chat about the historical aspects of the story and how they were adapted for the movie. Then Tristan Bass and I will discuss the visual aesthetics, among other things. And of course, we'll all talk about the treatment of sexuality in the film and our appreciation for it as queer women. If you want a refresher on the historic context, pause this show for a bit and go back and listen to my podcast on Queen Anne that came out a month ago. Since we pretty much plunge into the details of the movie, I'll give you a brief synopsis of the plot. Queen Anne of England is in the later part of her reign, The country is still finding its balance after the upheavals of the mid-17th century, which included the English Civil War. There are those who question Anne's support for the war in France. One strong supporter of the war is Sarah, Duchess Marlborough, whose husband leads the English armies and who has been an intimate friend of Anne's since they were both children. But Sarah has come to take Anne's affection and loyalty for granted. And when Abigail, a cousin of Sarah's, joins the Queen's household, the two find themselves in a struggle for the power and influence that comes with being the Queen's best friend and lover. So that's the background. The last time we talked to Farrah Mendelssohn on this podcast, it was in connection with her wonderful Regency-era lesbian romance, Spring Flowering. This time, she comes to us as a historian. Dr. Mendelssohn is in the middle of writing a book about fiction set during the English Civil War and is a visiting fellow at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge, England. But she has also recently become managing editor of Manifold Press, which is seeking submissions in the field of queer historical fiction. Check out the show notes for links to her various projects. So, I, I got the impression from your review, which I did read, that we have a similar take on it, that the movie totally trashes timelines and compresses things, but that emotionally it felt like it sort of got the history right? Yes. It felt to me like it got that late 17th, very beginning of the 18th century period, where politics really is in flux. And I know we tend to say that about all periods, (laughs) but just moving into the party system, I mean, my partner complained about the phrase, use of the phrase, the loyal opposition, but actually that's when that phrase is just emerging because to be opposition in the previous 50 years is to align yourself with rebels. Yeah. So you need that phrase. We are Her Her Majesty's loyal opposition. Yeah, as opposed to the ones who cut people's heads off. Exactly. And you also get that sense of a growing confidence in England, of a growing sense of expansionism. Uh-huh. which really is not there before. I mean, people do tend to forget that for we think of the Elizabethan age as the age of the explorers. Actually, in the Elizabethan age, we're basically Somalia. We are the pirates off the coast. <laughs> By this point, 
England is starting to have influence on the continent. We're doing more than just sending mercenaries. We're actually becoming genuinely involved with overseas wars and we're winning. Whereas under Charles I, we'd mostly lost. Mm. So that politics, and then the court politics of the period, which Lucy Worsley talks about a lot, which is intensely personal and very much about who has access to whom. That was one of the things that I really tried to emphasize when I did my my podcast on Queen Anne, which was being a gatekeeper, being able to control who talks to the queen was nothing to sneeze at. Oh no, and for this entire period, men don't have the access that they are used to having. There is no groom of the stool. There has to be a lady of the stool. There is no groom of the bedchamber. There is a lady of the bedchamber. That changes the dynamic quite dramatically. And this may, in fact, be the beginning of the period of the whole concept of of political wives who become terribly important in the 18th and 19th century. Oh, yeah. Who marries can make or break his political career actions and her ability to manipulate the court. One of the fascinating things I discovered in my Wikipedia deep dive is that, so both Sarah and uh, Abigail had the position of keeper of the privy purse, the, the uh, being in charge of the finances of the royal household. And as far as I can tell, they are the only women up to the current day who have ever held that position. I think so, because I think Elizabeth used a man. I, I wouldn't to that. That's part of actually a general shift in the household. One of the consequences of the English Civil War is that kitchens and households become female space rather than male space. It's almost classically the same as, as the First World War. Men are pulled out of their traditional roles and replaced by women, and because there is a man shortage, men don't go back into those roles. By the time England had a uh you know, a ruling queen again, the the gender politics had shifted. I mean, Victoria had only male keepers of the privy purse. Yes, but also by then it meant something different. Yeah. It's not such an intimate role anymore, because although Victoria is not completely a constitutional monarch, she's certainly a lot more hands-off than Queen Anne would have been. Yes. In that sense, Queen Anne is a full monarch in the sense of Charles II. I wonder to some extent whether some of the historic vitriol against Anne was this this men feeling pushed out of the places of power and and it turning into misogyny and a very personal critique of her. I think that's an element, but don't forget she's also the last of the Stuarts, and I think a lot of people heaved a huge sigh of relief about that. <laughs> And there's no question that Lady Sarah Churchill's memoirs produced her reputation. Oh, yeah. Um, And also, I need to read the newest biography, but it sounds as if Anne's interests were very similar to Charles I's, in that she was a patron of the arts and the music. Now, on the one hand, that's a good thing, but there would have been men around her who remembered Charles I being a patron of arts and music for the good it did the country. So I think there would also have been that tension about which of her ancestors she took after. And signs that she was like Charles was not going to comfort anybody. Yeah. So getting back to the movie in particular, how did you feel it handled displaying the politics? I know there was a lot of the compression of the whole Whigs versus Tories things and making it 
more modern feeling. But what do you think? Mostly very good, although I did get a little confused as to who the Whigs and the Tories were, and that was despite the fact that Whigs were colour-coded. Yes, I noticed that! And I think that was actually a function of the time compression. But at one point I I got confused as to whether Godolphin was a Whig or a Tory. He's a Tory. Um, (laughs) And and that, I think, wasn't handled terribly well. And I, I think they needed to bring in the court and country division earlier than they did. It was funny because they made up the the Tories to be very foppish, very yes. uh, effeminate and foppish with the white wigs and the makeup, and they really visually coded that difference, which doesn't seem to align with the actual historic politics well. And, and to be honest, it's the same problem with, with roundheads and cavaliers. Everybody puts roundheads with short hair when actually they look the same as the cavaliers. <laughs> uh, but, but it's a nice shorthand, except I think I would have done it the other way around and had the wigs, the city chaps, dressed fancifully because they're the ones with access to that money. And I think that's my kind of 19th century imposition, if uh-huh. that makes sense. I don't think either is correct, but by coding the Tories is more foppish, of course. It codes them with the Cavaliers. Yeah. You know, the the, the plain gentlemen. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think about this. So... What, oddly enough, I think they got very well with was the gender politics. The sense of women in this period as being very disposable. Mm-hmm. Because we still are in the period when there's a man shortage. There aren't enough men. And women's value, uh, you can see, is going down. So the book I would point to is Daniel Defoe's Mol Flanders, which really talks about this. The way that women become cheap. Uh-huh. And, and of course, he was one of the, if I'm remembering correctly, he was one of the writers that the Tories brought in, well, so Harley, at least, brought in to do political propaganda. No. No? Okay. Because I know, John so, Swift, Swift was the one so who brought it's in. a very obvious assumption, and I made it myself, because the book is called Memoirs of a Cavalier. And Memoirs of a Cavalier is an extremely sly dig about at the Royalists, uh-huh. written Cavalier soldier who fights the Cavaliers because his dad says he should, and who spends the entire book talking about how appalling the king's generalship is. <laughs> it's actually a pro-parliament book, but I made exactly the same mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a very good book. It's worth reading. There's no criticism on it at all. It's fascinating. Utterly yeah. neglected. Um, but the same with Mole Flanders. It's advertised as a romp, and it's not. It's a social novel about the exploitation of women. Mm-hmm. It's interesting well worth read but to go back to the movie yeah <laughs> so i think it handled churchill very well and it handled that sense of aggression on the continent of england wanting to be a continental player mm-hmm. and i think it also handled that sense that parliament cannot really do anything without the king's without the queen's permission yeah yeah it didn't handle well is the sense that Whigs and Tories just are not that rigid in this period. Mm-hmm. And there were quite a lot of unaligned. There's a great swathe of radicals, for example. Uh-huh. It, it's not, it was made to seem very binary in a way I don't think it was yet. Yeah. And the other thing so, that I noticed, which you know, I suppose I can understand dramatically, but it really set up Abigail to be passive and manipulative at the same time in terms of the politics that she was being used as opposed to having a political position of her own. Except I think she begins by being used. 
and moves into becoming a user. Okay. And I, I think there's a, a shift halfway through. And the shift is, to give away something in the film, when she's masturbating her new husband. Uh-huh. She's making it quite clear, I'm going to have sex with him. Yeah, or, or certainly that Yeah, he is there to serve her purposes, to be her official place, you know, out, other than the Queen's favour, to have a place in court. Well, not so much the Queen's favour, but, but Sarah's favour. From that moment onwards, we see her start to manipulate the political agenda. But even then, we've seen her taking note of the occasions when Lady Sarah has lied to Anne. Uh-huh. So she's building up those moments of... She, she may not have a political agenda, but the nice side of Abigail is kind of horrified that the Queen is being lied to, and being lied to by somebody who claims to love her. Uh-huh. And of course, that, you see, that brings in the, the friendship politics, which I found fascinating and terribly plausible, because, I mean, and this bit we do know is grounded in reality, but we've all seen those friendships that were, were very dependent friendships. Yeah. The dependent person sees an in, starts to see an inconsistency or stops being dependent for some reason. Uh-huh. Often those friendships shatter with the lead character not quite understanding why they've shattered. <laughs> and, and, I, and of course, with, with, with this one, uh, part of the time compression is that the, the Sarah Anne friendship was already crumbling at the point when Anne was crowned. Yes. Uh, but but I, I accept that part of how they messed with the timeline because they needed to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and even that you see. So part of the issue is that Anne falls out with Mary hugely with her older sister. I don't think they see each other again for years. Um, I'm trying to remember. From what I, I saw, they, they they met once um, when Mary was berating Anne over something and then not again until Mary died. Um, and I think it was not as classic sisterly squabble, as in I don't think it was particularly political. Yeah. But they fall out badly. And Sarah, in some ways, had been Anne's bulwark against Mary. Yeah. So release the pressure one side and things get out of whack on the other side. And then, of course, Anne does become queen or becomes heir because it becomes mm-hmm. very obvious that Mary is not going to have children. Yeah, and, and it feels to me very, very realistic that Sarah had built up this enormous bank account of goodwill because she was Anne's bulwark. She was her, her loyal supporter and the one who, who put put Anne above everything else. And this is a world in which men's and women's worlds are very separated. Yeah. In that sense, Sarah is, is essential to Anne. And we do know things like Anne didn't see very well. Uh, that's true. Neither did Mary, as far as we can tell. We know that she was very poorly educated. She was mostly educated in religion. She did not have a full princess's... She was not educated like Elizabeth I, for example. Uh-huh. So in that sense, quite vulnerable and we also tend to forget that she's rather short of relatives <laughs> one of her grandfathers has been executed and the other one is in exile her, her other grandfather is the Earl of Clarendon Edward Hyde he gets exiled during Charles II's reign and never comes back mm. so she doesn't have some of the people you might fall back on yeah and then so of course there's comes. the the whole Catholic branch of the family that is its own yeah, problem but she has so there isn't much around her, if that uh-huh. makes sense. And one of the things the, the film elided over, which I'd forgotten, is that she loses two of her children to smallpox. Yeah, so and so many it, of them either 
miscarriages or stillbirths. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think they did a good job of the grief, but I think they accidentally give the impression that all of the children died in infancy. And no, she loses two little girls when they're almost about to enter teenagehood in a smallpox. And she loses Prince George when he's about nine. Hmm. So she actually raises three children only to see them die young. I, I think they got the grief part right. Epidemic, she lost one of her other friends, which probably also reinforced Sarah's position. Uh-huh. I find Sarah really interesting. Well, the movie certainly sets her up as the the dashing romantic lead, as it were, even though she is clearly shown to be, you know, manipulative and self-centered. But you can be the dashing romantic yes. lead and be manipulative and self-centered. In fact, I would say it goes together. But in many ways, that's exactly who Sarah Churchill was. I mean, we obviously not the dressing up in men's clothing. Uh-huh. Um, Rise of the Stride, by the way, was much more normal then for a woman than it would have been 100 years later. Side saddles were still quite primitive at this point. Uh-huh. But she was a dashing romantic lead with a dashing military husband. In many ways, she was the leading woman of court. And that, of course, will have raised tensions. One of the things that I was fascinated by in the, the movie symbolism aspect is that in many ways, Sarah was set up to be the romantic male lead. She was presented in terms of a visual masculinity that was more masculine than most of the men around her. I don't know how much I agree. There is that scene when Anne pulls her down onto Anne's lap. Uh-huh. I, I know what you mean. Sarah is, is frequently portrayed as the dominant one. I was thinking just well, the visuals that, well, okay, the, the the riding outfit with the tall boots and all that. It's simple and elegant in a way that modern people see as more masculine than all of the, you know, long wigs and, and uh, everything. But this takes us to the thing I liked best about the movie, which is although it played with things like that, it never felt like a salacious male gaze. Yes, absolutely. Most of the people I'm seeing who don't like it are all men. I've not yet seen a woman really dislike it, whereas I have seen quite a few men really dislike it. I find myself wanting to say, this isn't for you. Uh This isn't about you. You aren't an important audience here. (laughs) But I don't want to make assumptions because I know they'd argue back and tell me, no, 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 it's just a bad movie. I think we're both right about Sarah Churchill and I think it's that interplay that makes it so wonderful. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fall into a complete butch femme stereotype. Uh-huh. And when Abigail comes along, what we get is... I don't think Abigail is femme. If anything, these days we might call her a baby dyke. Mm-hmm. What she's portraying is youth, because Sarah is older than Anne, which is hard to remember because yeah. she looks so much younger. And that's right, because Anne's had a really tough life. Yeah. So it's more, I think, the age shift that Anne goes from being the younger, subordinate partner into being the older, dominant partner. Uh-huh. It's that shift that I found really interesting, because that's a very realistic shift, I think. I, I also liked, there was, there was one scene when Anne and Sarah get back together again, I think after the bath episode, and it's clear that Anne is being very conscious about playing the two off against each other. She's feeling energized that she is finally pulling the strings. And I liked and that. Two, two women want her. Yeah. She is, and I think one of the things Olivia Coleman does very well, actually, 
is being convincingly desirable when she is old and an invalid. And I thought that was fascinating. But it isn't it isn't completely portrayed as a pity fuck. Right. And it's actually rather entrancing. Yeah. I also and and you know, it's it's not my place to have an opinion on this, but my impression was that it handled the presentation of disability fairly well. That you got oh. this very strong sense of Anne's physical suffering and yet dealing with it. It certainly worked for me. She looked to me like somebody in chronic pain, having good days and bad days. I mean, I've been all over the shop personally on this one. I've had to use a wheelchair. I've walked with a, a stick. My knees are fine today and yesterday, but I spent all of last week forcing myself to walk because it was absolute agony, but knowing that the more I walked, the better it would get. Mm. And it did. You know, I'd walk for an hour in pain and then the pain would disappear. And yes, the, the strain that puts on the face came over very well. The this sense of wanting to be able to move and not being able to. And other days just thinking, I am so done. Somebody do something to my leg. I am done. Uh-huh. That was rather brilliant. But also that sense of here is a woman who really isn't well. Yeah. Just things aren't good. And there's nothing anybody can do about this. They can ease it a bit. But that's about it. And the, the only thing that I'm willing to forgive that awful dance scene for, I got the impression that it was there to remind Anne of what she doesn't have, of the physicality that she doesn't have, and to, to stimulate an emotional response there. Oh, I think so, but why didn't you like it? Uh, I, it was just sort of like it, the, the modernness of the dance. I mean, yes, okay, the, the costumes are, are, are very modernish and all that, but... No, 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 no. It's much, much closer to the reality of the dance of the period than any 20th century movie recreation you usually get. Okay, tell me about that. <laughs> okay, so there is this idea of sedate dancing. We seem to have acquired it at the end of the 19th century during the early attempts to recreate older music. It gets played too slowly. It gets played politely. Okay? <laughs> Remember, the Victorians are the ones who invent underwear. <laughs> Women don't have any knickers on. And in fact, I think we see that because we see um, Abigail peeing. Yeah. These dances are lively. They're energetic. They involve throwing women up in the air. You know, they're more like modern ice dance than they are like a modern waltz. Okay? Okay. It's risque because of how close it held somebody. Mm-hmm. But lifting somebody, throwing them around, that was completely normal. And ha- we know hand gestures were parts of dance because they're talked about. It's just we have no way of recreating them. But voguing actually <laughs> struck me as a really <laughs> good way of giving the impression of, if that makes sense. Um, so an, an equivalent I can think of is as a film about Edith Piaf where she's speaking Cockney. Hmm, okay. And that works the same thing, because what you would normally have had is somebody speaking received pronunciation, which doesn't give the impression of a French Parisian gutter snipe at all. Uh-huh. Okay, okay, it, I, I, I have been convinced. It's been part of the whole revival of how do you play early music, the whole rethinking, how do you recapitulate dance, and it, modern productions of Pride and Prejudice, for example, uh, the more recent movies, have all made the dancing 
much, much livelier than it would have been uh-huh. in the 1950s movie. Yeah. Part of our notion of ballroom dancing is, and this is no longer true, I suspect, we all grew up with the idea of tea dancers, mm-hmm. but tea dancers often being danced by people who actually didn't know the steps anymore because nobody did. <laughs> well, I didn't grow up with that, but... <laughs> but in a sense, most people could manage a waltz and a foxtrot, and that uh-huh. was about it. But these dances used to be enormously complicated, much more like the 1950s habit of learning a new dance. Yeah. So I, I liked that. I thought it was nicely done. And I thought the over-exaggeration went with the wigs. So <laughs> I loved the wigs. <laughs> so, the favorite historical movie. What's your overall take? I adored it. We'll be getting it out on DVD the second it's available. Uh, it's not massively accurate, but that's fine. I loved the design. I love I loved the fantasia of it. So for me, a lot of the anachronisms were fine because they were fantasia-style anachronisms. They, they weren't anachronisms in that sense. They, they were out of space and place. I thought it was fantastic, but most of all, I loved it because it made space for the female gaze. Okay, that sounds like a really good closing wrap-up. For the second half of our discussion, I'm joined by Tristan Bass, one of the founders and the editor-in-chief of Frock Flicks, a blog and podcast dedicated to the love and loving critique of historical movies and TV shows. The Frock Flicks site is a hoot, and the women who run it are extremely knowledgeable about historic clothing and style and the popular culture of historic costume and its reproduction. Check out the show notes for links to the Frock Flicks blog and podcast. So what were your overall impressions of the movie, just first off the top? I really liked The Favorite. I feel like it was definitely an art house film mm. in the kind of the old, old sense, I guess. Very indie, very kind of arch, very... Um, meaningful. Meaning, well, very self-conscious mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Very much, well, the director was definitely playing with the art form of film very self-consciously, uh, using different kinds of camera techniques. I mean, he had fish islands, he had quick cuts, he did, did a lot of, of things that were not naturalistic, not trying to be you know, in the moment, but he was trying to be in film. I'm in school, <laughs> I'm in film. But simultaneously doing a lot of things like the natural lighting, you know, so much of the candle lighting, Yes, which I love that as an effect. To us, it comes across as, oh, it's all very dark, a world lit only by fire and all yes. that. But visually, it's just delicious. That's true. And actually, that played really well into the interiors. And it's, it's something that the production designer noted that they really shot their wad, budget-wise, on yeah. the interiors. They really focused on using appropriate interiors and there's that sense of the historical space both the big rooms but also the really small closed dark rooms yeah like um abigail's bedroom right. just felt really right but but the yeah with the, the hangings and the the heavy furniture and and that sense of closeness um and the little uh tunnels in the hallways mm-hmm. the back stairs yeah, yes yeah exactly yes. So while that felt very historical and very accurate, these other things felt very filmic um, and very art filmic. So, and the the costumes carried that as well because while they are historically accurate in construction and in silhouette and shape and, and all that, they are very distinctly monochromatic, made in materials that are not- Yeah, I mean, you look at them and you can say, what the hell is that made of? 
and yet the the silhouette the impression yes works yeah i mean that was very purposefully done again some of it was budget because they, they spent all the budget on the locations and sandy powell the costume designer did note that she was eking out a budget <laughs> she went down to, to markets in brixton and grabbed whatever you know looked good and because the the director wanted to use um, a very monochromatic look kind of referencing the um Peter Greenaway film, Drossman's Contract, hmm. uh, which is also in, the costumes are in black and white <laughs> for a particular plot point reason, which also, if you've seen that and then you see this, you get this kind of little film school, like, in-joke kind of <laughs> reference. So again, it feels very kind of art film refer- referential. One of the things that I noticed, and I went back and made sure I was seeing it properly the second time around, was the way the men's costumes were used to reinforce your oversimplified understanding of the politics. So that, you know, although it was not universal, but the Tories tended to be in the very artificially white powdered wigs and with makeup, whereas the wigs were in the brown wigs and without the makeup. I felt that that was part of playing with the representation of masculinity, where okay, they're wearing foppish wigs and these, these fancy coats and, and, and playing duck races and all that, but at least we are not the guys in the powder white makeup with the white wigs who are portrayed as, you know, as much of a villain as there is in there. And they were literally wearing red and blue waistcoats mm-hmm. differently, yes. uh, each political party, which the, the viewing that I saw, some people were commenting on that in the lobby afterwards, I laughed because I thought it's it's like if if you were watching C-SPAN and, and and saw the U.S. Congress and you know the Republicans were were literally wearing red jackets and the Democrats were literally wearing <laughs> blue jackets. It's, it's that as opposed kind to maybe just the ties. Yeah, <laughs> although you know they they tend to mix it up and it's yeah. not as, yeah. as that literal. Um, but it was it was this kind of color coding. Those were the only colors that were really used. The women's clothing was all black and white. The upper class, the the servants were in this kind of dusky blue and gray. Like almost denim, it seemed like. It was denim. Ah, It was denim with old jeans. (laughs) Um, Again, budget. But with that sense of, you know, livery. So both class and gender were played in the the colors um, Mm -hmm. as well. The other gender aspect that I was really struck by in the costuming was when Sarah is wearing her shooting outfit, you know, the, the masculine outfit. And although I think in the first shooting scene, you never see her legs. So it's not as obvious that she's wearing breeches and boots, but then later you do see it. And I really felt like she was being set up as the most masculine character in the entire film. And it was not just eye candy, which Definitely. of course it was. Definitely, but, yes. But that she was being set up as more aligned with modern standards of masculinity in in the clean lines, the very clean, elegant lines, and of course the high boots. Yes. <laughs> and what I liked about that riding outfit where she is wearing really modern pants. She's not even wearing historical riding pants, mm-hmm. like what what the men of the period would be were wearing. I mean she was wearing Frankly, they looked like you know leggings you could wear today, mm-hmm. into in tucked into you know thigh high boots you could wear today, okay. with the jacket and the waistcoat that were period, but the from the lower half it was not even men's wear of the period, and it was a great look, but it was it was very you know half historical, half modern. However, what I liked about it is that she was wearing that when the in the scene when you see 
when you see her for the full length, she's seen only by another woman. Mm-hmm. It's not a male gazy thing. Yeah. It's very much she is asserting her dominance over Abigail. Yes. And she does that through men's style clothing. She's not wearing it to be sexy for men, and she's yeah. not wearing it to be sexy for women. She's yeah. wearing it to be a sexualized woman. Yeah. It's a power play. Yeah. It's very much a power play, which is unique because usually when you see, you know, women in men's clothes in film, it's it's just a sexualized thing. It's just mm-hmm. it's because it's it's cute for the men, mm-hmm. and so that was a very clever point for both the director and and the costume designer to show that only in the scenes where she's making a point against Abigail. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I really noticed, and this sort of gets into the iconography of lesbian relationships, is that they made Sarah a brunette and they made Abigail a blonde. And I think both of them were blonde historically, to the best of my research. But this is the classic thing from like the pulp covers, <laughs> is, is that the brunette is the aggressive mannish woman and the blonde is the innocent college girl who is being seduced. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, the question of whether Abigail was being seduced or being a seducer is really kind of up to interpretation there. True, true. And especially um, Abigail as the, the young ingenue blonde coming up through the ranks and kind of finding, working her wiles to get what she needs mm-hmm. in a very mercenary way. Yeah. That's a kind of a huge trope, kind of a, yeah. kind of a blonde. <laughs> like she's a, almost a gold digger in that yes. way. Yes, yes. It's maybe a little more complicated than that, but there are times in the film, the film wants to kind of go back and forth with that. It's not clear. I mean, she's not painted one way or the other. I think that the film did a good job of showing the complexities because although you get a sense that Abigail got her way into the Queen's graces by being genuinely kind and thoughtful and more subservient than Sarah had any intention of being. But then there are the times when you see that Sarah genuinely loves Anne. You know, that she has this genuine affection and sympathy for her. Like the time during one of the attacks of gout when, when Sarah's sitting there and like telling her stories of their childhood to, to distract Anne. Mm-hmm. To me, it really struck the, the complexity of the whole set of relationships, that there is not a good guy and a bad guy here. No, that, that is definitely true. They were all very complicated relationships. I feel like you know, Sarah had the longest relationship mm-hmm. um, with the Queen. And so she had the most in common, and that definitely came through. Abigail is the one where it's a little, how much is she using the queen? How much does she really care for? I keep coming back to the the worst honeymoon night ever, uh, where, you know, she, Abigail has, has used the queen to get a man because you need a husband for status and for security. Mm-hmm. And... The, the thing, too, that I thought was a, a, a great play, a great reversal, really, of the kind of meet-cute, hetero-romance that <laughs> most movies would stick in there, and it would be like this, oh, you know, she meets this boy, and they have this little flirty thing with, in the rolling in the forest, and, and she's, oh, but she's also going to get the queen to make this marriage for her. And then she just, their wedding night, she, she's jerking him off, and she can't think of anything but her power and status relationship. Yeah, she's scheming. In relationship. She's planning and scheming. To Sarah. 
And, the and he's there saying, what about me? Exactly. <laughs> and so for her, at least at that moment, and kind of that, that crucial moment kind of throughout from there into the end of the film, it's all about power and status. Mm-hmm. Whereas before that, you've been kind of wondering, you know, well, maybe she wants a, a nice place. She just, she just wants to be, you know, of use and of service. And, and she it's... seems softer and gentler. And in that point, you're like, it's almost like there's a not a switch or maybe either she was revealed or there was a switch i don't know but that at that point she becomes the the more grasping Hmm. character i mean the the sense i got from how the character was being portrayed is that it became an addiction to security for her that when she realized that sarah saw her as a rival just for being who she was and that therefore she needed to engage with the status war in order to have any security at all that was a point at which you know you're addicted. You're on the merry-go-round. You can't get off again. There, she's still riding the horse at the end. You know, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, and she had no recourse. Even it's it's the the security, so so to speak, air quote security of uh, you know having marriage and a place in in court didn't. It wasn't security. Yeah, well, it wasn't security for Sarah. Yeah, and of course that. Part although all the timelines were compressed oh, horribly, which that's it. It was necessary. That was the thing going in that I was prepared to be most annoyed by, and after I started thinking about it, I realized it's like no. In order to focus on the triangle, they needed to do that reshuffling of timelines and compressing it down because, of course, in real life, the breakup between Sarah and Anne had happened right around when Anne was crowned. So all of this, you know, we've conveniently, you know, killed off Anne's husband already. Um, and it's clearly, you know, more towards the end of her reign when she's you know, very disabled and dealing with all the hard politics. But that, that was necessary to tell the story they wanted to tell. And I, I accepted it. I bought it. I think that's, okay. that's something that's crucial uh, to accept in film or, or TV versions of history. There is going to be a timeline shifting or truncation. I mean, it's just, you've got to tell a story. And I, I feel like the director and, and the writers mm-hmm. um, really told an effective story, created interesting characters, and all and these, these actresses, oh my God, they are all stunning. Um, yes. They are already winning all the awards, mm-hmm. and I power to them because they were all amazing. There's no historical veracity on film or TV because there can't be. You, you can't tell stories effectively in, in a filmic yeah, timeline. As, as they always say, you know, unlike real life, fiction has to make sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to sit there and want to watch it. <laughs> yes. And if they had not done such a good job telling stories, then the history would have bothered me more. <laughs> exactly. So... Queen Anne of England, lesbian or not? That's too too fine a point to put on it. I, I mean, it's you know, it's hard to label somebody else. That, yeah, I, I was I was joking about but, the simple yeah, question. I know, of course, because of course that's that's part of yeah. you know the whole thrust of my website and podcast yeah. is saying it is more complicated than that. It's, it's messy. Yeah, it's and particularly in royalty. And here's the thing: with royalty, you always have the duty to provide an heir. The genetic imperative. That is a requirement. So, I mean, you you can look at any number of royals in any country, um, in any time period, and doesn't matter what their personal 
inclinations inclinations or wishes or desires were if they are in the line of succession they have to provide an heir so that's going to happen lie back and think of insert country <laughs> England here. in this case in this case England although uh, you know by all accounts Anne and uh, George's marriage was very affectionate yeah. for a royal marriage yeah. but, and you know for goodness sakes she got pregnant 18 times yeah yeah, Which is, you know, one of the real tragedies of her life really was is. that she did not end up with any surviving children. Yeah. Although, for the time period, not entirely uncommon either. Certainly not uncommon um, in her family. Yeah. You know, her, her mother had a similar history. Right. And, of course, Queen Mary, her yeah. sister, had no surviving children. Yeah. And I think the thing in the movie with the rabbits representing yeah. the yeah. pregnancies, on one part was sort of silly, but on the other part... You know, it, again, it worked on yeah. a symbolic level. Yeah, it was it was a really nice symbolism. I um, don't know how well the meaning came across to the average watcher. Right. It was maybe a little too subtle. Yeah, and and of course, I have to note that as, as I think everyone I know who's seen the film has noted, the very final scene with the rabbits. Yeah, that's a little heavy-handed. Okay, um, I could cut the entire like <laughs> last ten minutes of the movie. Because it wasn't just the weird rabbit pile at the yeah. end. The f- closing credits were the most horrible typographical mess I have ever seen. I think I walked out by then. Uh, <laughs> though I will say the final scene the, before the bunnies, I thought, where basically Anne is, is making Abigail do her. I thought that was like the whole power. It was another power play. And I thought that was that was a good way to end on. Mm-hmm. Kind of reinforcing... This is what you bought into, this, lady. Yeah. This, is, this is what you get. Yeah. Reinforcing that mix of love and power and status. and just Because that's what it was all about. I, I like that it reinforced that Anne was not a passive participant in any of this. Exactly. You know, the other scene I really loved was they have just come back from that weird mud bath scene. <laughs> and Anne and Sarah have, have had a little bit of reconciliation. And they're talking about Abigail, and Anna's basically saying, I'm playing the two of you off against each other. I enjoy being the center of your squabble. Yeah. Uh, and given that it was would have been so easy to keep framing Anne as, you know, the pathetic, stupid, ugly, fat queen who's right. disabled and everything is happening around her, I mean, that would have been really easy to be a very, not just uncomfortable, but nasty caricature. And so bringing everything in where Anne is shown as not just being a player in her own game, in her own intrigues, but also the scenes where she's shown as genuinely working at the politics, you know, doing her best to, to read the bills and to understand what's going on. And, and that redeemed it from, from really doing her a disservice. And that actually goes back to your simple question. I think that both because, you know, she was queen Actually, really, because she was queen, she and she had the obligations. She had the obligation of not just the obligations of state, but the obligations of providing an heir. Where was she getting her love and affection? And for most of her life, it was from Sarah. Yeah. So she she had to find that somewhere from her court. Mm-hmm. So she would look to who is who is in my court that I could get the love and affection that I need because everybody needs that. You know, you have your consort, you have your and they're Obviously. living in such a gender-segregated society yeah. at the time. I mean, you know, and this is something that, you know, I, I keep emphasizing again and again about writing historical fiction with 
female-female relationships in it is for an awful lot of Western history, life has been gender segregated and nobody's going to look cross-eyed at you if you are having these close, loving relationships with your female friends because you're not supposed to talk to men. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and especially at the rarefied position yes. of queen, you are surrounded by women. And she was not surrounded enough. I noticed that, that at the beginning of the movie, it felt like she had almost enough servants hanging around. But they used the absence of human figures around her to represent her emotional loneliness. And so as the movie goes on, there are fewer and fewer people in attendance on her, and the ones that are there are like standing very stiffly at attention, as if they're statues. This is another thing where the historical inaccuracy is kind of in your face, but on a symbolic level to tell the story, it's saying, you know, she is alone. And another thing that I felt that was interestingly treated and actually kind of I like the treatment of was her disabilities. Mm -hmm. And the fact that she's portrayed as an older woman who is is not physically capable. Um, you know, she couldn't, she was in a wheelchair. And how isolating that is. Mm -hmm. And how isolating physical ailments can be if you have a chronic illness, mm -hmm. um, how depressing that is. Yeah. And I thought that was beautifully shown through a lot of the shots, a lot of the kind of production design and that. I think that was just beautifully shown and not in a, oh, how pathetic you are, but in a, I'm distanced from people and mm -hmm. I'm isolated. It was pathos without being pathetic. <laughs> Although, I confess, the initial scene with her and Abigail with the herb salve on her legs, it's like, this is the tropiest thing ever. <laughs> you know, the kitchen maid somehow steals a horse, rides oh, out God. to the convenient wilderness, uh, picks the right herbs. We've got the whole, you know, herb woman, wise woman motif. Yeah. Grinds them up and this magically, you know, is sufficiently healing that she is plucked out of the uh, gutter, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty random there. <laughs> so let's get back to the whole overall summing up. I, I really like this and I liked it more than I expected to. Because at first I was thinking, oh, well, you know, uh, lesbian themed historical movie, just my thing. At least it's better than nothing. And I thought they did a great job. Yeah, I agree. I I was going in it for primarily just for the costumes by Sandy Powell because she is, you know, Oscar winning costume designer and I knew they were just going to be fabulous and they were. Mm -hmm. um, even where I, I knew they were not going to be perfectly historically accurate because of the liberties that were going to be taken, mm -hmm. um, they were still amazing and done extremely well. So I got what I wanted on that part, but also it was an amazingly well-crafted story stunning actors just brilliantly portrayed i enjoyed watching all three of them like mm -hmm. so much <laughs> I, can't, I can't even believe a female centered movie i mean yes. and that is still very unusual is to have a movie that basically says we know who our audience is we are aiming it at you this movie is about women for women and if men want to watch it that's okay but you know it's just not and, for you and it's about how women use power in history and not in in some anachronistic way of let's all grab swords and march out somewhere like probably didn't happen or mm -hmm. let's you know put on pants and march out swords you know it's not making stuff up for the sake of making stuff up it's these are actual 
historical ways women used power. And these are things that essentially did happen. And these are the ways that women would act with other women. And that's refreshing to see. Yeah, it's, it's not making the women powerful by making them more like men. Yeah. It's making them powerful by looking at how women held power, as you say. Yeah. Showing how that's actually interesting on its own right. Absolutely. Yeah. So everyone should go watch it, right? Totally. And if you missed it in the theaters, in catch it on streaming or cable or wherever um, able when it comes out. Because as soon as it wins the Oscars, it so totally deserves, it will be out for wider distribution. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 